0: This is The Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. Hello, and welcome to Episode 4 of The Concast. Today, I'm very happy to have with me Gauri Pillay to discuss abortion laws and reproductive rights in India. Uh, Gauri, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Gautam, for having me here today.
0: Our discussion, of course, is, is triggered by the recent abortion case before the Delhi High Court and then the Supreme Court in July that made a lot of headlines, not least because of various oral observations made by the justices at the Delhi High Court. Um, The facts of this case that, that goes by the name Miss X versus Principal Secretary, Health and Family Welfare Department, Government of the City of Delhi, uh, but that there was a woman who was in the twenty-fourth week of her pregnancy when she came to the High Court. She was pregnant at twenty-three weeks and five days, and uh, she asked for an abortion under the terms of the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act and the rules, which are the umbrella legislation and the rules that govern abortions in India. And the uh, the High Court, in an interim order, rejected uh, her uh, request. Uh, there were many bases for this rejection. One thing that the High Court stressed upon both in uh, in its oral observations while the case was being heard and also in its uh, interim order was that the woman was in an unmarried but consensual relationship at the time that she got pregnant. And that the medical termination of pregnancy rules under the Act did not allow for an abortion beyond 20 weeks in such a case. So starting with that, uh, Gauri, I was wondering if you could perhaps explain to us the broad legal landscape um, regulating abortions in India and and why the High Court held in its interim order that this case did not fall within the permissible scope of abortions. Of
1: course. So The best place to start is where abortion regulation began in India, which is the Indian Penal Code under sections 312 to 316 criminalizes uh, abortion essentially. And the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act or the MTPA, which you just mentioned, is constructed as an exception to the general rule in the Indian Penal Code. So the MTPA is legislation which allows abortion under certain specific conditions within certain very clearly defined time limits. So I'm not going to discuss all of the law, but just the law that's relevant to this specific case. Um, so the MTPA provides that women can be allowed abortions within the limit up to 20 weeks as per the 1971 act, if uh, certain conditions are met The condition that's relevant here is if the unwanted pregnancy would cause a grave injury to their physical or their mental health. So this was as per the 1971 act. And in 2021, this act was amended, uh, the process for which started in 2020, March. um, And the amendments actually changed that time limit of 20 weeks for certain categories of women Though the amendment itself does not specify what these categories are, and it increases it up to 24 weeks. And these categories are now mentioned in the amended NTP rules, uh, which were initially uh, introduced in 2003, but the amendment was notified in October 2021. And as per the NTP rules, it lists certain categories of vulnerable women for whom abortions can now are now allowed under the law up to 24 weeks so um there are several categories mentioned um for example women who have become pregnant as a result of rape or minor women etc but what's relevant for our purposes here is the clause which says that um when women experience a change of marital status then they can seek per- uh, termination up to 24 weeks and then in brackets the clause provides that two illustrations or examples. So it doesn't say that they are examples. So in brackets, it mentions uh, widows and divorcees. So this is sort of the legal landscape and how the provisions of the act and the rules interact with each other. And based on this, the Delhi High Court basically said to the petitioner that it took a very literal reading of the statute. And the petitioner's claim was that Her partner has deserted her and therefore now she does not want to continue with the pregnancy because it would cause her immense mental agony. So she was claiming the uh, grave injury to mental health. She was kind of uh, asking for an abortion under that specific condition. And the Delhi High Court said that because her pregnancy is at 24 weeks now, To allow an abortion, she would have to fall within the provisions of the rules. And rule 3B, which I discussed earlier, talks only about married women and a change in marital status by either losing their husband or separating from their husband. It does not talk about unmarried women and the court not legislate and therefore the court simply took that literal interpretation and said to the petitioner that and rejected the claim of the petitioner essentially for um, an abortion. The petitioner also claimed that um, the this rule 3b must be constitutionally held invalid under Article 14 because it excluded unmarried women and therefore created a non-intelligible distinction based on marital status. The High Court did not, the Delhi High Court did not uh, uh, enter into the merits of that claim but simply issued notice on that claim. So this is essentially what happened in the Delhi High Court and the Supreme Court differed.
0: Uh, we we'll uh, we we'll just come to that uh, Supreme Court in a moment. I just wanted to, uh, just uh, for the sake of clarity, uh, so so basically the position is that originally under the Indian Penal Code abortions were illegal. Um, yes. Then in 1971 we have the, and that's still the position, so the default position still is that abortions are illegal Absolutely. under the Indian Penal Code. Mm-hmm. Then in 1971 we had the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act that mm-hmm. carves out a set of exceptions under which, and I, I think from what I gather it doesn't even say that abortions are illegal. It says that you shall not. The a medical practitioner. This is section three of the act. A medical practitioner shall not be guilty of an offence under the yeah. code yeah. uh, if you know they terminate a pregnancy. So it's not that. It, it, it basically it's an immunity. It's a legal immunity for what is otherwise still a, a criminal act. And I think yeah. I, I, I mean, asking questions for you about that maybe a little later. Sorry, sorry, you were saying.
1: Yeah. No. Just on that point, even multiple cases that have um, been kind of brought under the NTPA makes it very clear that this is not a statute that seeks to grant women women a right to an abortion. Rather, it is one that is aimed at providing immunity to medical practitioners from an otherwise criminal act. So it's quite clear that that is what its intended purpose is.
0: Right. And in a certain sense, when the High Court does its literal reading, it's what it's doing is it's continuing to read, I guess, this entire legal regime as an exception to what is otherwise an illegal act, because that's what, I guess, in its mind it is yeah. choosing to justify a narrow reading of, of the Act and the rules.
1: Exactly, yeah. Because because it, it operates under the shadow of criminalization, um, there is implicitly a narrow reading that is adopted, not just by courts, really, but also by medical practitioners under the Act.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so I want to come back to that in, in a little bit. Sure. But just to continue on with, with the, mapping the legal landscape, so, mm-hmm. so, yeah, so the 1971 Act then carves out an exception in its present wording, calls out an exception for uh, abortions up to 20 weeks, if in the opinion of a medical practitioner, there is a risk to the physical or the mental health of the pregnant woman. Mm-hmm. And then there is a further exception going up to 24 weeks, the terms of which are set out in the rules uh, and they have a category of what you said, specifically vulnerable women. Yes. Uh, for whom that period extends up to 24 weeks. So effectively, there are these. It's a three-tiered structure mm-hmm. where the default is abortions are are illegal, except where up to 20 weeks certain conditions are met for all women, and then up to 24 weeks where certain conditions are met for some women. So that is okay. effectively the map of the law, is it? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely. And I think seeing it as exceptions sort of piled. One on top of the other is actually a helpful way to look at it and to explain the Delhi High Court's reticence to actually read it
0: broadly. Right. Uh, so now the Supreme Court, which took the opposite <laughs> view, right? So um, so maybe you could talk a bit about how they read the uh, the rules and how that approach differed.
1: Yeah, so the Supreme Court basically called the interpretation of the High Court an unduly restrictive one, and they claim to be adopting a purposive interpretation of the NTPA. And uh, I'll just come back to that in a bit. But uh, so the first, and they, uh, the Supreme Court's understanding was based on four arguments. The first is the court held that uh, the specific categories that I mentioned of widows and divorces they are just illustrative of the broader category, and they don't exhaust it. And they read the broader category as a change in relationship status rather than change in marital status. And they held that the petitioner's relationship status changed because she separated from her partner, and uh, just like when a married woman undergoes a divorce. And therefore, the court held that the rules accommodate the case of the petitioner. And this reading of the court was backed by the fact that they saw the legislative intent of the 2021 amendment as including unmarried women within the NTPA. So this actually comes from um, section three, which talks about the condition that both Gautam and I just spoke about, which is that uh, abortions are allowed when there is a grave injury to the physical and mental health of the pregnant woman. And there are explanations to the section which which illustrate or help uh, the decision maker arrive at a conclusion of when is there an injury to mental health and one of the explanations in the 1971 act used to say that there is there is a presumption that there is an injury to the mental health of the woman if there is a failure of contraception used by a married woman and her husband. So the basis of that presumption of course is that this applies only to married women and. Implicitly, unmarried women were excluded from the scope of the legislation, or at least bringing their claims under this provision and under this explanation. So, in and, and there's been a lot that's happened after that in terms of advocacy, to point out that the exclusion of unmarried women is unconstitutional. So probably taking all that on board into 2021, when the Act was amended, this provision, this explanation was amended to to remove the reference to married woman and her husband, which was replaced with any woman and her partner. So, there's obviously a distinct change in the language that's used, uh, which now goes beyond relationships of marriage to other consensual relationships or or non consent. I mean, yeah. (laughs) other relationships, let's just say. So, um, so relying on the shift, the Supreme Court held that the intention of the 2021 amendment was now to extend the provision of the, or the application of the MTPA to unmarried women as well. And therefore, they said that the petitioner's claim ought to be brought within the rules, uh, or rule 3 b The third uh, led to the Supreme Court's um, um, holding was that, and I, I disagree with the court here, already. they held that the spirit of the, or what the MTPA tries to do is to promote reproductive autonomy and reproductive choice, and simply denying a woman reproductive autonomy on grounds that she's unmarried uh, is at odds with the spirit of the NTPA. So while strategically this is an argument that works in favor of the petitioner, I think factually and historically, like we were just explaining, um, it's hard to say that the NTPA is premised on reproductive choice or autonomy, and this is something I'm happy to discuss further. But anyway, the Supreme Court in this case saw it as uh, being premised on autonomy and therefore allowed the petitioner's claim. And finally, the court held that... Uh, living relationships have been recognized constitutionally in in India and that it refused to impose notions of social morality about the immorality of living relationships through the lens of the constitution and through through the law as an instrument to curtail the autonomy of both parties involved. So therefore they held that, that that's not a kind of constitutional or legal interpretation that ought to be promoted and held that. The empty the rules should extend to the petitioner. So there were these four arguments on the basis of which the Supreme Court, in its ad interim order, allowed the petitioner's claim for termination of pregnancy, as long as a medical board examines her and confirms that the termination is safe.
0: And that medical board is that comes from the rules, right? The rule the rules say that for the 24 week, if it's yes. between 20 and 24 weeks, then the mm-hmm. medical board gets gets into the act and they have to, um, you know. Uh, they have to do a few things. They have to certify that, yeah, yeah that it's safe yeah. and things like that.
1: Yeah. So the medical board requirement, it actually initially came within the jurisprudence in a case from 2016. It wasn't a part of the law. It was just something that courts created for pregnancies. So so there is section three, which we already discussed. And then there is section five of the NPPA, which says that Uh, The restrictions of Section 3 don't apply when a termination of pregnancy is immediately necessary to save the life of the pregnant woman. So there were many cases that are typically brought under most of our jurisprudence is actually under Section 5 of the So
0: emergency cases, basically.
1: Yes, in emergency cases, because the the women go to the doctor after 20 weeks and then the medical professional say, you know, our hands are tied. You just need to go to the court and then they go to the court uh, under Section 5. So most cases are under Section 5. And so then the medical board requirement was created by the court in response to cases coming to them under Section 5 to see whether because later on pregnancies are medically riskier and therefore the court or instead of. Re- simply requiring one doctor to assess the situation the court set up this judicially created this requirement of a medical board which usually involves four or five different people uh, four or five different special doctors sorry and uh, this requirement then became codified as a part of the law and the rules under the 2020 amendment and uh, to the to the act and the rules
0: oh, so that actually you know that really uh, explains something I used to see a lot when I was uh, in the Supreme Court daily a few years ago, which was, you know, a lot of abortion cases in the Supreme Court. And it, at some point it seemed to have, um, I think, decreased. And I, I guess that was when the medical boards became, in a certain sense, formalized in law. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now now it makes sense. And obviously, the Supreme Court, on a case-to-case basis, can't take that call. It has to mm-hmm. defer to some to body. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess we'll, we'll come to that in a moment, uh, back to that. But just to to, to clarify, so effectively... in the the original MTPA, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: one of the indications for when carrying a pregnancy to term would cause a threat to uh, a a woman's mental health was a failure of contraception except that that was limited to married couples only. So that was what the original act said. Um, And as a result of advocacy and social movements, they extended the ambit of that uh, provision uh, to include uh, um, unmarried uh, couples as well by using the term partner. So mm-hmm. as of now, um, if a woman claims that there was a failure of contraception which resulted in uh, pregnancy, then under the act itself, that becomes a ground. Uh, it, it's taken as a given then that, that the pregnancy would be a threat to her mental health, and that becomes a ground for allowing abortion, uh, mm-hmm. and that. Change was used by the court to the Supreme Court to say that, therefore, if the Act has extended its benefits to unmarried women as well, then the rules cannot restrict um, the 24 week extended benefit only to a breakdown of marriage, but has to also then include a breakdown of a non marital relationship as well. Yes. Right. Uh, And I think, so I guess there's a lot to unpack here and also in, in what you said. I think the immediate pragmatic sort of question I have is that so, and I, I asked um, on Twitter for people to, you know, if they had any questions for you in this podcast, and um, and there were a few questions, and and one uh, from uh, Kumar tripurari he asked that does is the impact of this that now uh, all unmarried women will be able to seek abortions up to 24 weeks. And when I looked at the question, I thought, well, formally, no, because the Supreme Court has said that there has to still be a change in relationship status, if not marital status. Mm-hmm. But practically, it would seem to me that if someone does want an abortion up to 24 weeks, mm-hmm. um, it, it, there was obviously a problem as far as the rule said marriage, because marriage is a state-sanctioned formal institution, and there are mm-hmm. formal tests for when a marriage you know, ends but now the court has expanded uh, you know uh, the ambit to unmarried women the court can't really verify or check that actually there was a breakdown of a relationship right so it, it does actually I guess perhaps open the door for um, unmarried women in as a class to now uh, get the benefit of 24 weeks
1: sure um yeah I think that's a good question uh, well to me the, the the question of your marital state is becomes relevant only if you're seeking the benefit of this specific explanation, because that's the only one that really brings um, whether you're married or you're unmarried into question. So there are other explanations uh, which and and it's also not that the explanations are exhaustive of the cases where a harm to mental or a grave injury to mental health can uh, be established. They simply illustrate a few Case, a few, I think, obvious cases where.
0: But, but for but for 24 weeks for 24 weeks those seven categories are exhaustive, right? Uh, for for the 20 extended 24 week period, uh, or, or, or 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 in or in your reading of the Act and rules. No, so
1: yeah, for the 20 right. to, for the 20 to 24 week period, this the three the different conditions still hold, but they apply only to certain categories of women. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So. It, so there are other conditions which exist as well right so it's only if you're claiming the benefit of this failure of contraception uh, condition does the question of macro status come into play um if, if right. you're if yeah so if you're if you're a woman who's seeking an abortion because or when the pregnancy is on account of rape it doesn't matter if you've been I mean, I suppose like because of marital rape, it's not even rape when you're married. But if it's rape outside the marriage and you're uh, seeking an abortion there, then that, that doesn't matter whether you're married or unmarried. doesn't matter if you're seeking it under other conditions and other explanations. But it's only when you want the benefit of this specific section that it would apply. And now even this section is interpreted to include unmarried women. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, so I guess I guess the question is that, um, a, a, as in this case, when where the woman in question, her her ground for for claiming um, for asking for an abortion was that her partner had deserted her, uh, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and uh, to the extent and, and and so I'm I'm just thinking of women who are now in a similar position as this woman was. Yes. Um, as as long as you had to demonstrate that a marriage had have was over, then the, that's something that could be objectively verified through, say, a divorce document, right, or or widowhood, right, or that death certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, when the court says that it extends to uh, partnerships in general, mm-hmm. right, uh, that's then now that that seems to be something that there is no formal way of of mm-hmm. verifying that like a partnership is over or not, right. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it seems to me that. It in a certain way allows for, um, mm-hmm. for for effectively women who want to uh, claim this um, this uh, uh, the benefit of this subclause change of of marital or relationship status. It mm-hmm. gives them this window where now they don't need to objectively prove that you know the relationship is is you know over or or, or prove desertion, uh, but that. Once they make the claim, then their right under this section now kicks in because the, that's what the impact of this of this order seems to me. My, could it could be used in that way in, in a good way?
1: Yes, I, I agree. And and if you look at the Supreme Court uh, order as well, there is no requirement on her as further step to prove that you know. She has been deserted. They kind of take the claim as has as been presented before the court. And uh, the other thing I always wonder about the NTP is is the condition, it's, uh, not not the rule, but the original condition about uh, failure of contraception. I've not read a single case which actually uses that condition, and I always wondered how that would be proved before the court as well.
0: Actually, I was, I was going to, that was my next question, to you because yeah. it seems to me that that, that yeah. when you read that alongside now this extension as well, mm-hmm. once again. There is literally no way. Well, I, yeah. I, I guess like, and, and and this is one maybe an issue with the with the um, with, with the act. It would still require, I guess, the partner of of the woman to, I guess, maybe you know go along with that uh, yeah. if that's the ground that is being invoked for um, for abortion. That's a failure of, of contraception. But ultimately, it it um, if if you if you read the act as saying that failure of contraception is taken as dispositive that it will lead to, uh, you know, um, injury to the woman's mental health and that's a ground for abortion, Mm -hmm. and the claim that contraception failed is obviously a claim that the woman will make and and there's no way to disprove uh, that claim as there shouldn't be, Uh, then does that effectively, while not in so many words, but kind of does create in effect a legal regime that... Comes close to authorizing abortion without having to jump through hoops, um, you know, um, in effect, like as a function of autonomy and reproductive choice.
1: Yes, um, I think the the wording of the law, just the NTPA. Yeah? gives that impression but i think it's at this point i always remind myself that the and and that's how the act works in practice as well it exists as an exception to a criminal statute mm-hmm. and therefore there is almost always if you look at almost always a reluctance to interpret the provisions in a broad um sort of facilitative way to facilitate choice and autonomy and if you look at how mental health and this doesn't come up so much in case law, because like I told you that there aren't really cases on this provision, but there are a lot of empirical studies that have been conducted on how doctors or medical professionals interpret the MTPA even before the 20 week limit. So before they're required to be before the emergency requirement kicks in and because criminal law exerts a sort of chilling effect on the medical professional, there's quite a well documented trend that even um, say damage to mental health or injury to mental health is, is interpreted in a way to exclude anxiety. If you're feeling anxious about an unwanted pregnancy, that isn't seen as reason enough uh, to be considered. That isn't seen as meeting that high threshold of grave injury to mental health. So even though what I'm trying to say is that even though the law in a way seems to provide a a, um, a situation where without verification of claims an abortion can be sought because it operates under the umbrella of criminal law in practice that's not really how um yeah that in practice that's not really how the law actually works
0: right and so i guess that that uh, it takes me to the question that so you said that you disagree with the supreme court's reading of the mtpa as an act which, by intent, is designed to facilitate women's reproductive choice, um, and uh, you know, and, and in your thesis, you've you've talked about in your PhD thesis, you've talked about you know the origins of the MTPA in a logic of family planning, right? Um, and um, so, so is 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 your concern stemming from the fact that the Supreme Court can say, as the Supreme Court, that yes, you know, the MTPA is designed to facilitate autonomy and Puttaswami Judgment puts a seal on that and so on. But until by structure and by design, the MTPA remains like an exception to criminal law, it will still continue to be implemented as an exception to criminal law. And therefore, the Supreme Court saying that it's about autonomy will not really change how the Act continues to work in practice.
1: Um, absolutely. that 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 is definitely one of my concerns. And I kind of see several assumptions which underlie the MTPA. And I also see that these assumptions don't simply exist at the level of amorphously lying under the provisions of the MTPA, but influence the architecture of the statute. So it's design. And also influence how the provisions of the statute are actually interpreted by courts. And earlier we discussed how the Delhi High Court interpreted it in a narrow way. And we also talked about why that could possibly possibly be because the NPTPA exists as an exception to criminal law. So these underlying assumptions, in the assumptions themselves are... Um, dangerous, they are unconstitutional, but at the same time they also have effects on how the law is um, built and how it is uh, interpreted in courts and by medical professionals. So you actually talked about uh, the how abortion is, is kind of a tool of family planning and that is one of the Uh, Certainly one of the things that I identify in my thesis. So the MTPA as we know passed way back in 1971 with barely any opposition really and to me the absence of opposition was because the MTPA was seen as aligning with the state interest in population control and therefore abortion became a method of family planning and india has a very fraught and prominent history really with with respect to population control so reflective of the, the the malthusian ethic that growing the growing population is what is responsible for you know delayed economic growth for poverty for the strain on welfare resources Population control has always really been an agenda, quite an explicitly stated agenda really of the Indian state. And a, a, a prominent example of that could be massive sterilization camps that have been conducted across India historically and even today, back even in 2021, one of these camps was conducted. And eventually the people, the women who end up going to these camps are women from marginalized groups because Either attendance of these camps is linked to welfare benefits or these women don't have access to temporary methods of contraception. And these camps often result in death and disease and damage to health amongst women from these groups. And India's own emphasis on population control has been strongly bolstered by What what I see and what what is shown within the literature is a global politics of population control, which blames third world women for poverty, for war, for environmental damage, et cetera. And it's been recorded that India has received aid and been implicitly pressured by several international agencies, including the World Bank, to implement these dangerous sterilization programs that I just mentioned. So all of this uh, goes to say that against this history, abortion and the NTPA also becomes a tool for population control. And this is quite well borne out in the provisions itself of the MTPA. So the provision that we actually discussed quite extensively before, the one on um, allowing abortion when there's a failure of contraception points to this, because then when contraception fails, abortion kind of steps in as a second level to make sure that there is no pregnancy. Right. Uh, yeah and this is not just an observation that i'm making but even in the parliament back in 1970 when the uh, when the mtpa was being discussed there was sort of an, you can notice that this exact sentiment was voiced several times by several members that that is this is the purpose. Population control is the purpose for introducing this specific provision and family planning is the underlying narrative behind the NTPA and several feminist scholars like, for example, Nivedita Min mentions this in their work as well. So one thing to say is that the state uh, when it presented the bill in 1917, the parliament resisted this narrative um, and it said that it's not an instrument of population control, but at the same time, it definitely did not say that it is an instrument to promote reproductive choice or reproductive autonomy, which is why I think that the Supreme Court's claim that that is the intent underlying the NTP is quite misplaced, but that sort of takes us to the question of what did the state see the MTPA as doing, which is also something I uh, unpack a lot in my thesis. And to me, the state saw the MTPA as providing certain women in certain unfortunate circumstances um, the the grace of an abortion. And So and both of these and this narrative is actually quite evident again within the debates. So from the language of the debates, we see that abortions were allowed to women on certain conditions, not as a recognition of women's choice, which is what the Supreme Court claims and as denoting respect for that choice, but because women were seen as deserving some kind of state sympathy and protection in those conditions. So whether it be uh, a pregnancy on ground of rape or When the fetus is diagnosed with, you know, kind of fetal anomaly or when their health and their life is under threat from unsafe abortions with backstreet abortion providers. And a logical corollary to this approach was that abortion in other situations, which didn't fall within this list, when women were seen as less deserving of state sympathy, these kind of abortions were not permitted. Because in those situations, it is either assumed that women would be happy to continue in their role as mothers hmm. or that these women ought to be happy to continue in their role as mothers. So there was either a descriptive that all women are usually happy unless, you know, there are exceptional circumstances or there was a normative imposition of a role uh, which sort of came out from from the language of the debates. And I want to give you a quick example of. of how um, this dilution of reproductive choice came out comes out quite strongly, because there were several dissenting voices in 1971 and in 2020, which who pointed out that the MTPA Act and the bill, the 2020 bill, um, were halfway houses because all they granted was abortion under certain conditions, and they specifically said that abortion must be granted to women on request, which means that there are no conditions. A woman asks for an abortion and she gets one. Um, so I want to quote here Vikram Chan Mahajan, who was speaking back in 1971, and he says that, I must say that the present bill is a halfway house. You should have put in only one sentence saying that if a woman wants to terminate a pregnancy, it should be allowed. There should have been only the one line and it would have been complete. So you, we see very clearly here in this dissenting voice the language of and the spirit of reproductive choice, but this request of the dissenters was, as we see in the Act, completely ignored to reinstate conditional abortion.
0: But just just to just to clarify on that, that, that could have been accomplished just by repealing the provision of the IPC that makes inducing a miscarriage a crime, right? So if you if you just repeal that provision, mm-hmm. then then you wouldn't need the MTPA at all. You uh, have a yeah. legal, legal landscape where, you know, yeah. it's not it's not a crime, and and therefore, or, or would you still need like an affirmative legislation that says, you know, that abortion is a right, um, you know, and a right that can be exercised in the following way and the following circumstances.
1: Yeah, that's actually a great question. So here, a couple of comparative examples are probably helpful. So one is Canada, uh, where a very similar regime existed back. In like the late 90s, and in 1981, in this decision called R versus Morgan Taylor, the or Morgan Taylor, I don't know how to pronounce it, um, the Supreme Court of Canada said it struck down criminalization under section 7 of the Canadian Charter because it held that it was criminalization was against the life and security of uh, pregnant women, um, and so then after that, there was no affirmative legislation which was introduced. So basically there was, it was, a, yeah, it was a situation where the criminal provision was struck down and therefore the existing law, which was an exception to the criminal provision went away, but there was no new legislation introduced. And if you look at what happened to abortion regulation in Canada after that, so Canada is usually cited as as a very progressive example of how abortion ought to be regulated, but there is literature documenting how the absence of an affirmative legislation has led to different um has led to an absence of sort of consistency or uniformity in how abortion is dealt with by medical practitioners and therefore there's a lot of discretion given to the doctor and there's there's a denial of abortion in many situations and uh, based on the doctor's personal or religious or moral oh, so religion.
0: it basically shifts shifts power from the state yeah. to like the doctor
1: mm-hmm, exactly so right. that So that that happens. So that's the experience with in Canada. In the UK, there have been some there's obviously there's been no legislative proposal of this sort, but there's work by uh, a few scholars, including Jonathan Herring and Sally Sheldon, who write extensively on abortion regulation in the UK, which examines what would happen if what you propose, which is remove the, because in the UK as well, there is a criminal prohibition and the 1967 act is an exception to the criminal prohibition. So they explore what would happen if we remove the criminal prohibition. And they say that they resist the claim that there would be a legislative vacuum. They say that abortion would simply be regulated under the existing wide network of um, regulations which exist for health. Any kind of healthcare procedure in general. Um, so, and something similar could also happen in India. For example, we have the Indian Council for Medical Research regulations of 2002, which regulate other healthcare procedures. So, potentially, it could be argued that abortion just becomes like why this abortion exceptionalism? It should just be regulated like any ordinary healthcare procedure. And um, yeah, And then different aspects of abortion would be re- regulated in other ways. So, for example, if it is medical abortion, then the um, regulation relating to the sale and advertisement of drugs would apply, etc. So there would be other legislation which exists instead of an affirmative um, one relating to abortion. But I think the experiences in Canada is certainly one to keep in mind. Um, as as we think about whether an affirmative legislation is necessary or
0: not. So if I've understood you correctly. The the critique of the Supreme Court order, and I guess just to maybe you know just to also say that in the context it was a very good order in yeah. I, in, in my in my view, and you know in, in the sense that it it actually made sure that the woman in question was able to uh, you know access um, an abortion, and in what it tried to do. Uh, but the critique is that. Uh, it's trying to it's um, it's trying to read into the NTPA a certain kind of progressivism or respect for constitutional rights that the statute's own structure and design resists. And so therefore, and in 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 a battle between uh, statute's structure and design and how the court intends to read it, what we have seen, and we've seen this in something like sedition, for example, where, the, the statute says one thing and then the court tries to bridge that gap and, and well, you have the last 50 years telling you that it doesn't work, is that it's not going to work. You know, so yes, the Supreme Court will step in from time to time. It will step in and it will, it will do the right thing. But it's not a sustainable solution because structurally the act is still designed as an exception to criminal law with a narrow set of categories that practice, medical practitioners, medical boards you know, maybe various judges from time to time are therefore, in a certain sense, incentivized to read narrowly, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, let, I should also emphasize, like you just said, that um, consequentially the Supreme Court its consequences were good for the petitioner before the court. But yeah, I don't think it can superimpose um, this reproductive choice kind of narrative onto the NTPA simply because it's also a question to me of... Um, discretion. I mean, some courts might read the NTPA this way, but for courts which don't want to, the existing structure and design of the NTPA very well support um Their arguments, you know, so like, have, like Delhi High
0: Court, the Delhi High Court, for example, exactly the
1: Delhi High Court is an example. Yeah. So, so then, then the legislation doesn't really value reproductive choice if it could be read either way. And to me, the Supreme court's order and its emphasis on choice flowing directly from the ntpa not from the Constitution, but from the MTPA, is definitely an exception. Even putiswami did not talk about the MTPA really. if it, 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 the judges in Puttaswamy made a general statement about decisional autonomy being derived from Article 21 and abortion and reproductive decisions falling within decisional autonomy. So, reading the MTPA to denote reproductive choice is definitely an exception rather than the norm. And that doesn't doesn't solve the problem because the structure of the Act doesn't really facilitate it.
0: And so, in in your view, the MTPA in its present form is is simply not consistent with Article 15, sexual, uh, non-discrimination grounds of of sex, uh, because you know, and and you can't interpret it creatively in a way that will make it consistent. There has to be kind of fundamental structural change to bring in an abortion regime. And as you said, it need not even be an abortion regime. It could be a health uh, regime that has abortion as one of the many health procedures uh, that is compliant with Article 15
1: yes that's
0: exactly what i think yeah so, so i mean i guess i guess then the question is that if that's not on the horizon um mm-hmm. then in in the, in the meantime you know is is it still it does it still make sense to to um to attempt to to interpret and read the act to the extent that its words and its structures allow as the supreme court did uh, in a way that tries to expand the ambit of reproductive rights um even when it may sometimes feel that it's not exactly consistent with what the act intended to do uh you know uh, is you see that that project as a, as a worthwhile project uh, on its own terms um
1: definitely because i think that that and even very practically, that's the only option that we are left with. But even on, on doctrinal terms, I think that's definitely a doctrinally sound exercise because when we assess whether a legislation is compliant with the constitution or not, there are two options open, right? One is to adopt an interpretation of the legislation, which is consistent with constitutional rights and values. And the other is, of course, to hold the legislation on the constitution. The second option is not really on the table right now, um, and so, so the first option, which is to interpret it in a way that's consistent with constitutional rights, is definitely at the moment the way we should be going. Uh, my only point about the Supreme Court, um, my point is not that. Um, I suppose it is. Actually, no. Just just cut it there. That's fine.
0: Okay. 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 No. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my my final final question. Final kind of set of questions. So this this doesn't appear in the high court's order, but it di- it did appear quite a bit in the oral observations, which was this stress on fetal life, right? So this this whole the high court was the chief justice was seemed a little outraged that, or suggest, seemed to suggest that uh, there is some equivalence between terminating um, the the fetus and something like you know uh, killing unborn life. You see that coming out a little bit you see that a little bit in a few previous judgments uh, and you discussed this in your thesis as well and to me it's striking because so i was re, i was rereading the mtpa very very closely before before this podcast and what is striking is the absence of any in that sense indication that that fetal life as a as a fetal interests are even you know present in the act uh, at least not until 24 weeks Um, beyond 24 weeks, perhaps you could say that the very fact that it's not allowed beyond 24 weeks suggests a legislative, you know, um, noticing of fetal rights. But up to that period where the MTPA operates, uh, it's it's all about mental health, physical health, threat to the life of the pregnant woman. Uh, You know, uh, you do have fetal abnormalities mentioned a couple of times. So uh, where is this... uh, where is this idea of fetal interests coming in into the High Court and is that something that has a certain lineage in our jurisprudence or is it something that's new or maybe you can help us unpack a little bit where this is coming from because this immediately reminds you of the US, right? And I don't think this yeah. is the road we want to go down. Uh, so where is it coming from? Yeah, I mean, um, great
1: question and I'm, I'm definitely going to go to the US right now, but <laughs> just before that. Um, so, so exactly like you said, uh, I just wanted to quote the part of the high court order, which which suggests this. Um, so the, the court repeatedly kept saying in its order, not actually order, in its order observations that allowing termination at 23 weeks would virtually amount to killing the child. And it doesn't use the word fetus, it doesn't use the word with unborn child, but it uses the word child, which which is quite significant um, because it, it denotes that the fetus is already a human being so that brings the question as to and which you raised as well as to what indian law as of now says on the status of the fetus and indian law is very up to now it's, it's quite clear that or very clear rather that there is no uh a fetus is not seen as a human being so one of the cases where the fetus is seen as having some status is such so Srivastava, vastava which is a Supreme Court decision from 2009, where the fetus is seen as a prospective child or a potential child. uh, And and the state is seen as having some form of a compelling interest in maintaining that potentiality of of the fetus who will later, after birth, become a human being. And this compelling interest can be used to impose reasonable restrictions on women's reproductive autonomy. So Sutitra Shivastava, again, to emphasize, doesn't see the fetus as a child or a human being, but as a potential child or a prospective child. Then you have this Delhi High Court, I'm sorry, Bombay High Court decision from 2016, which is even more clear. Um, it The case is called High Court on its own motion, and the court there held that an unborn fetus is not an entity with human rights, and a child when born and takes his breath, that's when the child is a human entity. So, precedentially, the Delhi High Court decision, to to even call the fetus a child needs, I mean it, it, the court ought to have backed up its claim because the fetus under Indian law is not a child and the second thing which also you mentioned is that you were surprised to see that there was no mention of the fetus in in the NTPA, and that's also the same if we look at the uh, and to the extent we can rely on parliamentary debates if we look at parliamentary debates you'll see that only whether 1971 or now in 2020 you will see that a couple of members objected to the NTPA on the basis that abortion is what they call virtually murder or a crime against humanity. Um, so they obviously saw the fetus as a human being, but but very soundly their objections were rejected, pointing out that there is no violation of the right to life in any manner. And um, this sort of line has also been taken by several high court decisions. Um, for example, Nand Kishore Sharma from the Rajasthan High Court in 2005 assessed that um the NTPA does not violate the right to life in any manner um so so both pres- the precedent and the legislative intent show that fetal rights or interests are uh, the emphasis of the delhi health Court gave is definitely incorrect uh, um and so and your question was where does it really come from and to me actually the first case to bring it into Indian Jew students was, to, to introduce this language of compelling state interest and prospective child was Suchitra Srivastava in 2009. And in Suchitra Shrivastava, it came from um, a citation of the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Roe versus Wade, where uh, they discussed the uh, abortion statute in Texas. And then there in the U.S., the court had held that the state had a compelling state interest right. in. Preserving potential fetal life. And in the US, in the context of the US Constitution, the court had held that that state interest could be used to restrict abortions. But and Chitra role was cited without any real explanation as to why this specific requirement in Roe ought to apply to an Indian context, especially where the history and the politics of abortion in India are in the U.S. is so different from that in India. I mean, we, we see what is happening in the U.S. right now. And the, there is a whole right to life lobby and, and fetal interests have occupied a very prominent role in the regulation of abortion. While in India, as I explained earlier, when abortion was seen as a tool of population, control a tool of family planning, there was barely any opposition to abortion in the first place. So now this this requirement or this sort of limiting interest based on fetal potentiality to me at least is imported into Indian law through a through a questionable exercise of comparative law uh, where this requirement in Roe is is just transplanted with no interrogation of its basis and whether it ought to apply in the Indian context or not.
0: I think that kind of just raises the question, right, that if if fetal interest is not, you know, present in the Indian legal landscape, and I think this is a question that a few people asked uh, on Twitter, um, both uh, Swapnil Shandbag and uh, Manar Bansal were asking that, then what, what interest does the state have in, in restricting abortions in the first place under Article 21, under proportionality and so on, right? So, and of course, the, the answer you would get in the US, the answer you would get in Germany, for example... Is little interest. You you are balancing those two, you know, norms or principles or whatever. Um, if that's not the case in India, then isn't there a direct, straightforward case for striking down the the inducement to um, the miscarriage that's there in the IPC? And I guess again, I mean, one possible response is that the interest it's serving is preventing sex selective abortions, right? And because that's something we can't ignore in India, because that happens. But there are other ways to prevent sex-selective abortions, like you know, strictly enforcing the law that makes sex determination illegal, uh, than to you know uh, restrict abortions in the first place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think another interest, so one interest very tightly, as you pointed out, is sex is, is restricting sex selection, and uh, there are we see several. Um, restrictions that have been introduced on abortion for this purpose. For example, in Maharashtra, these rules were eventually not uh, notified, but there was a proposed rule to limit abortion up to 10 weeks, to limit legal abortion up to 10 weeks because it was presumed that, uh, because the state was acting under the assumption that all abortions after a period of 10 weeks are probably for the purpose of sex sex selective abortions basically and eventually this was not passed but um, this is an example of uh, where sex selection becomes a restrictive uh, or a reason to restrict and similarly there's been severe clampdown on abortion pills on the sale of abortion pills and regulations regarding them Uh, and uh, the reason that is given is that they want uh, the state wants to uh, prevent discrimination against the girl child by restricting abortion. Uh, the other sort of interest, which I would like to highlight here is, is the interest in women's health and we, it actually comes up quite strongly. Um, so the claim of the state is that later term abortions are bad for women in the sense that they're medically unsafe and therefore we want to impose restrictions on later term abortions because, uh, yeah women should like you know we care about women we care about their health and we don't want them to be harmed um so again this raises a very similar question as to whether and and again actually to give you an example of that just like sex selection has resulted in restrictions on the sale of abortion pills, similarly this this proposed or um Apparent interest in protecting women's health has also caused clampdown on sale of abortion pills because what the state argues is that abortion pills are being sold indiscriminately by pharmacists who don't really know how these pills work, and therefore women are now taking them when they ought not take them. And the state's response is okay, let's just severely restrict it. Uh, right. So, so, the, and precisely like the point that you made with respect to uh, sex selection, there are two, there are a few ways for us to to make the consumption of abortion pills safer for women. So one way is to educate the pharmacist on whatever way, when should, when is it medically safe to take abortion pills, educate women on when abortion pills are safe, educate doctors and promote them within hospital. I mean, there are all these ways. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a way, like, let's just take away decision-making and instead right. just stop their sale. So this measures obviously not necessary to protect women's health but it, it seems necessary because of these underlying assumptions about decision making about women's decision making capacity because it seems it's seen as easier to justify to just take away the decision making power than invest the resources in training and education and the, the irony also is that restricting abortion never i mean it Empirically, I mean it's so clear that restricting abortions do not result in abortions going away. Yeah. They just go outside the system to unsafe backstreet abortions, which harm women's health so much more than actual later term abortions. Um, so so even if we think if you think about whether restricting abortion is suitable to achieve the Uh, objective, stated objective of promoting women's health, it is not. So it's neither suitable nor is it necessary. So, um, but it's easy to justify because, um, I mean, we're not seen as people who can make decisions about our health. And I just want to make one last point on this, which is something I mentioned earlier about the Indian Council of Medical uh, Regulation, the ICMR guidelines and how medical decision making operates in other contexts, right?
0: Right,
1: right. There, uh, in other contexts, if the decision the final decision rests with the patient, the doctor's duty is simply to provide the information about to the patient and the patient's um, friends and family about whether a medical procedure is dangerous or not. There is no if if a doctor says that a medical procedure is dangerous, the patient can decide still to go ahead with the procedure. There is no obligation on the doctor to conduct the procedure, but the doctor is required under the regulations to refer the patient to another doctor. While with respect to abortion, and to highlight the abortion exceptionalism here, this is not the case at all, right? Here, if a doctor decides that the procedure is too risky for you, for, for a woman, then that's it. End of story. Um, the abortion is denied. Um, so uh, there is no... Uh, yeah, so, so uh, my point is that how decision make, medical decision-making works in the abortion context is therefore extremely different from how it works in other contexts, which also points to these insidious assumptions about women which underlie abortion regulation.
0: So this is the example of what you were saying, abortion exceptionalism, right? That, I mean, the answer might just be that you, you eliminate the IPC provision that criminalizes it. And mm-hmm. then instead of treating it as this standalone autonomous legal regime, you treat it as just like any other decision that, you know, a a patient makes in any other health context, uh, you know, which would then not require a whole special legislation or regime that, you know, puts regulations, restrictions and so on. You you treat it as any other autonomous decision that an individual, and in this case, obviously women, make about their own health. Mm
1: -hmm. I think, yeah, that's definitely an option for the law. My only concern with that is that this sort of moral, the morality attached um, to having abortions, abortions, especially outside pregnancy, um, mean, I mean, I don't know if if because of the, the moral implications or and, and the fact that eventually it has to be performed by a medical professional, whether there should be an affirmative registration right. to right. guarantee right. that they yeah. perform yeah. that procedure, right. you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Simply because, so, uh, so uh, there's a recent study that's been conducted by some academics working at the National University of Delhi in association with the Center for Reproductive Rights in the US on on how um, abortion, like how these medical professionals actually implement the NTPA right. and something that to me very interestingly came I mean not surprisingly came out from that is that a lot of doctors are seen as discouraging women from opting for abortion especially if it's their first uh, child there's also very strong language that's where there's a very strong language of fetal interest actually because a doctors say that you know you're killing a child this is a right. sin you ought not right. do this so so i worry that if there is no affirmative legislation and it's simply treated as a medical procedure we are ignoring the fact that at the end of the day in the minds of the people who are required to perform the procedure it isn't simply a procedure
0: correct correct um, yeah so but, as i said you, you the, the law has to empower the woman and in a, in a certain sense disempower the medical professional from you know exercising yeah. a certain kind of authority over the decision making yeah. process
1: Yes, exactly. So for, for, for that purpose only, I, I think that an affirmative legislation is as a way to go, though when I think about what the legislation ought to contain, it's like very simple, three or four lines. <laughs>
0: yeah so um well, this is this is a good segue into i think the final the final question on twitter and i think um, we'll end with this um, because i think this this shows i think this illustrates what you've been talking about so uh, karina chavla says that the Etsy bench very clearly overlooked the bodily turmoil a woman has to go through and this is something that in your blog post you've you've highlighted in in detail and uh, can it be said that it's something linked to the subconscious male bias ignorance with respect to women's lived experiences Even the SC bench fixated on the legal questions more than the turmoil itself. Mm -hmm. And as you said, this is also, of course, extends to medical professionals themselves. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, thanks for that comment. And I completely agree. I think that there is, and it, it, so just like Karina, I think, um, said it, it, there is a question of ignorance of, of how severe the bodily burden of, of even a wanted medically normal pregnancy, all of the things that I describe in my blog post the kind of changes that it brings to the various systems in your body, all of that exists when the pregnancy is wanted, you're very excited to have the child and it is medically normal. So imagine when this is an unwanted pregnancy and there are complications, it's of course so much worse. So one, there is a a kind of ignorance about these bodily burdens and Secondly, is is that th- there is a normalization of them, right? So there is a, an assumption that which which flows through the act, the way it's interpreted, all of it that. This, all women do this. I mean, what is the big deal? Just continue with this pregnancy. And the Delhi High Court very obviously hints at this when they keep saying that, you know, it's just a question of 12 weeks. And all you need to do is to carry the pregnancy to term for 12 more weeks. And we will pay. And they keep telling the petitioner that they would pay for the delivery they would pay for looking after the child all the the petitioner can give up the child for adoption all the petitioner has to do is to simply carry the pregnancy to term for 12 weeks and um, so it's almost um when I read it I was really angry because it portrayed the petitioner to be this really unreasonable person who refused yeah. to do something or like would refuse to um like agree to this very small request of carrying the pregnancy to term for twelve weeks when in and i point out found this out in my blog post in no other context does the law mandate this kind of uh requirement so um and the Supreme Court's order again, it talks it talks very much in legal terms. it talks about bodily integrity, it talks about control over one's body. but to me, of course, it's a question of control, but it's also a question of what am what are you being asked to do when when you're asked to carry an unwanted pregnancy to term? what is the magnitude of that ask? and if we if we are not upfront and explicit about that, then, that that kind of ignorance that kind of male bias will continue to exist so hopefully this is something that i don't know this is a change in litigation strategy or, or to to bring this kind of material before the courts and to kind of really show them that this is what we talk about when we're talking about bodily burden it is of course a question of for being forced to use our bodies in ways that we don't want, but also it really, really severe, and you cannot just dismiss it as, you know, just a few months of doing something you don't want.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I mean, I, it, hopefully the eventual, eventually at some point when, you know, there is that root and branch overhaul of the legal regime that stops it from being an exception to a crime and removes the crime itself, Hopefully, you know this sort of evidence will will help flip that, I guess entrenched belief and and maybe bring bring a change. Um, I guess we yeah we we, we hope for that. But thanks thanks so much for for joining me and I know you you're shifting shifting countries, shifting jobs, all of that. So it's it's stressful, but but thanks for taking time out um, and really going into this in so much detail.
1: Um, Thank you, Gautam, and it was really great, as always, to talk to you and, yeah, to get to to have a platform to discuss some of the work that I've been doing. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. This podcast is hosted by the Indian Constitutional Law and Philosophy blog. So if you liked it, do head over there and subscribe. Thank you once again and until next time, take it easy.